Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us to weigh in on the situation in Europe at the moment, I'm pleased to say Jacob Kierkegaard joins us now, Peterson Institute for International Economics Senior Fellow. Jacob, I want to begin with Italy just briefly, if we may. The government, just how sustainable do you think that new government is? Well, I think it all depends on the internal coherence of the new two coalition partners. Uh, It's very clear from their, I would say, gift shop uh, of a governing program that they want to run an expansionary fiscal policy and that this is going to run into trouble with, with the European Commission and the rest of the EU. So the question is, can they among themselves agree to structural reforms and thereby get Um, acquiescence from the rest of the EU for an expansionary budget. If they can do that, I suspect they will actually uh, be able to muddle through. And then the question is, how does their big rival, Matteo Salvini, fare in opposition? I think that is uh, a really big question. He's got financial scandals with Russia. Uh, We will see what happens on the immigration front. Um, and the economy might, you know, there may be a positive surprise. You never know. One thing that I find interesting, Jacob, is that uh, if I look at, for example, the Italian 10-year bond, yields have reached a record low of less than 1%, although up a little bit, but 0.89%. And it seems like an ideal time for Italy to borrow money to try to bolster its economy. Do you expect them to do that? I mean, given the fact that that probably would rankle the European Union. No, I certainly expect them to try. I mean, I think they are going to, uh, you know, come up with some sort of expansionary uh, budget. I think you're going to be looking at a fiscal stimulus, certainly north of 1% of GDP. Um, But as you said, uh, I think it's not not clear that you can claim that this is, despite Italy's existing high levels of debt, is really a huge issue for sustainability, given where yields are. Uh, although I, I suppose you'd also have to say that the uh, recent decline in bonds is sort of pricing in expected more ECB QE. So if that doesn't materialize, maybe sentiment will shift. And also, Jacob, to some degree as well, we're pricing in the fact that Matteo Salvini is not getting the election he desires. So I think that's the key question. We go back to the one we asked at the start. Just how sustainable is this government? What does Matteo Salvini have to do? to achieve in opposition, if he can, Jacob, to bring this government down? How does he go about doing that? Well, I think there are two two strategies for him. Either he's going to sit back and wait for the government's internal uh, inconsistencies and friction to boil over, uh, and they basically have another uh, divorce in the new coalition. Uh, That would basically uh, sort of allow him to run a campaign and saying, see, I'm the safe pair of hands, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that that's a risky strategy for him because uh, uh, this government may actually last uh, potentially several years. Um, and then the, the joker for me is also uh, this big financial scandal uh, that the League Party has with potential Russian funding. Uh, we, I think it's, fairly, it's safe to say that the new government is going to push this very aggressively. Uh, and who knows what is, uh, what is buried there and, and may come into force. Alternative Salvini uh, can go flat out uh, Eurosceptic, uh, run as a pure populist against uh, you know the European Union, the Euro, and everything like that. But again, that's a very big uh, risk for him because he needs 
the support of more centrist voters if he's going to get anywhere near the 35 to 40 percent of the votes that he polled uh, before he pulled out of the government. So things look more positive in Italy, uh, maybe in, Bra- in in the United Kingdom. And I am pointing to the idea that perhaps the idea of a hard Brexit is less on the table because Boris Johnson uh, has had his hands tied, as John well put it well, earlier today. I'm just wondering, how likely do you think it is that the United Kingdom is actually better poised right now to avoid not only a hard Brexit, but come to some sort of resolution uh, that keeps it uh, at least somewhere aligned with the European Union? I certainly think in the very short run, the chances of a no-deal Brexit on October 31st uh, have declined very dramatically. Uh, What we are looking at, however, in my opinion, in the UK is uh, another general election, uh, either uh, shortly before October 31st uh, or uh, sometime more likely sometime in November meaning uh, after a likely extension of Article 50 and postponement of Brexit. The key problem, however, in my opinion, is that that general election is entirely, uh, it's entirely impossible, at least for someone in my pay grade, to uh, predict that election. You could have Boris Johnson winning uh, that election. If he does, then there's no doubt that he will claim uh, a mandate for a no-deal Brexit, and this will happen probably uh, in early 2020. Alternatively, you could see uh, the Labour Party with some coalition partners win, in which case uh, you are almost certainly looking at a second referendum on Brexit and a potentially cancelling on Brexit. Or you could have another hung parliament, uh, like the one we have today, with no clear a governing majority. And then The question is, what will happen then? Uh, At that point, I think uh, a second referendum on Brexit is probably also likely, only the process is going to get messier. But what I will say is the bottom line is that the acute uncertainty concerning the UK has just been postponed by maybe a month or two. And Jacob, it gets even harder to predict the election because, of course, Brexit, Remain, Leave is not divided by party lines. On top of that, if the experience of 2017 is anything to go by, the last time we had an election in the UK... Jeremy Corbyn didn't exactly run on a Brexit platform, did he? Remain or leave? He made it about other issues. And I just wonder, is that what we're in store for? If we get another election, Jacob, will it be a situation where it's not about Brexit, it's about almost everything else? I mean, that's certainly what Jeremy Corbyn would like. Uh, I think he's, uh, that's why he, I think, is, is likely to push for an election date after October 31st, because one that undermines Boris Johnson's sort of pledge to, you know, leave the EU, do or die. Uh, but secondly, it allows uh, uh, <coughs> Corbyn, as you say, to run on other issues, reversal of austerity, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, so he's going to try to frame it that way. Alternatively, of course, Boris Johnson is going to try to frame this election as somewhere you know you can choose between a no-deal Brexit with him or perhaps the bigger evil, which would be Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so there's going to be a big fight over the narratives of this election. But the reality is that the two, the traditional two-party system in the UK is breaking down. And now you have this new emerging almost political identities that people vote on whether they are leavers or remainers. And that trumps pretty much everything else, uh, giving you an entirely unpredictable electoral situation, in my opinion. Hey, Jacob, it's great to catch up with you to get your thoughts on a range of topics, including Italy and Brexit. Jacob Kierkegaard there, Peterson Institute for International Economics, the senior fellow.
dollar strength the story up until yesterday. Let's bring in Esther Reichout, shall we? Commerce Bank FX strategist. Esther, walk me through your base case for the US dollar, please. Well, uh, the focus right now is, uh, of course, now that there is a better sentiment with respect to trade talks. The focus will be um, on the ECB meeting next week and the Fed meeting the week afterwards. So right now, it's central banks back into the forefront, um, which means that we could see some further downside, at least in the short term, as we expect uh, quite a substantial easing package by the ECB, while the rate cuts by the Fed should be priced in. And uh, as I already said, we are at a positive support surprised by the ADP employment um, report. So um, there is no reason right now for uh, the market to bet on a substantially weaker US dollar. So as soon as the sentiment um, with respect to the trade conflict is priced in, um, I think it's back to back to the central banks. So if, you, if it's back to the central banks, we've got to talk about some of the hawkish comments we've gotten out of ECB officials basically pushing back against the idea of a bazooka or more bond purchases or even cutting interest rates or cutting the deposit rate. Do you think that they are the majority or do you think that they are just a very vocal minority? Um, yeah, well, that will be actually the game changer with respect to the decision um, next Thursday because interest rate cuts are largely priced in. So what's going to drive your dollar is the unconventional monetary policy measures. And it is um, interesting that we have such a vocal outcome of the Hawks uh, ahead of the meeting. Um, I, we still think that the chance is higher for them to be actually a vocal minority because that's not that, that surprising. We've heard that before. Um, but in the end, it was always... Um, Mario Draghi basically, or Mario Draghi's view that basically um, set the stage at the decision. Um, so, uh, yes, it's surprising that they come out this number, but um, we've had that before and it didn't change anything. And in the end, we already had um, also comments about that we need something substantial now that exceeds market's expectation um, to have a bigger market impact. And um, I think that's also something the ECB uh, Council will consider next Thursday. I guess the, the question is, when you say it's all about the central banks, interestingly, it hasn't been so clear cut uh, when it comes to FX trading that it has been all about the central banks recently. What makes you think going forward that's going to be the main driver rather than just economic strength? Well, it's uh, only going to be the big, biggest driver or the bigger driver, I guess, in the next two weeks, um, mainly because um, some attention has been taken off the trade talks. Everybody now expects basically calm with respect to this topic um, ahead of the October um, talks. Um, so now the focus has shifted a little bit. It will definitely go back to trade, to the trade conflict, and um, hence the economic consequence and the economic strength uh, after uh, the central banks. But I think that's not, you know, like what's the main uh, focus uh, in the in the very short term, at least, because this topic has been set aside at least um, overnight. Esther Reichelt, thank you so much for being with us. Esther Reichelt of a Commerce Bank AG, the FX strategist there, uh, looking at uh, the dollar today. Let's get some opinion on what's going on with the United Kingdom. We're looking right now at the pound having its best two-day rally since November of last year. What has changed, though, really? Let's bring in John Authors, Bloomberg Opinion uh, columnist and uh, an executive editor, at senior writer at Bloomberg Markets. So 
John, we were talking yesterday about this, but mm. what really has changed to make the uh, the outlook so much better for the United Kingdom right now? Uh, well, n- nothing is great, but as far as the market is concerned, there is one catastrophic outcome uh, that is much less likely, which is leaving the EU without a deal. Uh, all kinds of other horror stories are still remain very possible, but the possibilities of logistical delays, medicines not being delivered, people are even suggesting Heathrow would close down. The, the kind of horrors that people talk about with no deal now do appear very much less likely. Okay. We, we've now established that Boris Johnson can't even force an election. Okay, so the, the idea here is that if Boris Johnson can't get either a new election, he can't get his own party to get on board with him, uh, and, and basically Parliament is fighting back and saying we're going to take measures to not allow a hard Brexit, that that all is yes. enough to make the chances of a no-deal Brexit incredibly low. Is that the idea here? That is the market assumption, and I think on balance it's correct. It's oh. certainly not out of the question. You, Nigel Farage hasn't gone away. He could yet make great gains in, a, in, a, in an election. The chances of no deal on October the 31st are now very slim. So I guess that the question is what then actually does happen? You know, if no deal Brexit <laughs> doesn't happen, you know, <laughs> yes. what, what do we, how, do we, how do we resolve this thing? Uh, my own personal opinion is that it requires Britain and Ireland to have very direct discussions with each other because the uh, the sticking point, yet another example of uh, Britain's past history coming back to haunt it, the sticking point is the, uh, is the Irish border issue. And as far as I can see, uh, Brexit is unresolvable without coming to some resolution between those two countries and the communities in Northern Ireland over how to fix, uh, fix that very intractable problem. That probably isn't going to happen. Well, but, but uh, my, hold on a second. But that, 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 in my opinion, is the only way we solve it. All right. So here's here's just sort of a logistic question. Mm. Let's say Ireland gets together with the UK to talk about this. Who gets together from the UK with Ireland? Who represents the UK's <laughs> view? Uh, again, I don't see, and we've heard this from EU negotiators earlier today, um, Boris at this point is unable to negotiate for the UK. We can't realistically have a further negotiation until after an election when somebody has some kind of a mandate. So as far as I can see, the impasse cannot be lifted for quite a while yet. Well, okay, so let's say... um... There is no negotiation with Ireland. What we know so far is that the UK has also voted to push back to delay the hard Brexit for or the the Brexit, excuse me, uh, the actual uh, UK enacting of the UK leaving the European Union on October 31st. They've pushed it back, I believe, three months. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so this buys them to pass Parliament. Right, still has to pass Parliament, but it, it will do. It will. Okay, yep. so they'll have three more extra months. What do they do in those three extra months, and will Boris Johnson still be leading the discussions? Uh, I think we have to get our act together to have an election early in those three months, probably sometime. The opposition parties are saying that once uh, no deal on October the 31st has been ruled out, which can't happen before Monday, but should happen then, then they would go for an election. I think it would be politically necessary for them to do so. So you would then have a new focus on on uh, on negotiations starting on Halloween, and presumably 
the Irish issue has to come up. It's always possible that Nigel Farage becomes Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'm not sure I would buy too many UK assets if that happens. If it does, then we're, we're leaving without a deal. It's always faintly possible that the Liberal Democrats somehow or other get into governments and they would regard a vote for them as a mandate to cancel Brexit altogether. So the, the, the panoply of possibilities is still very, very wide, but it starts after an election. Let's talk about the election. Could Boris yeah. Johnson win? I mean, who who would potentially beat him? Yeah. Uh, Boris Johnson could very easily win. Um, the first question is whether the people who want Brexit will go with Boris or with Nigel Farage, who has the rival Brexit party. Certainly a big part of Boris's strategy of going so aggressively, forcing through um, uh, the uh, the notion of a, of a no deal was to neutralise Nigel Farage as a threat. It's unclear yet, and it will depend on how good a politician he is, whether he gets those passionate Brexiteers out in the country, and they're not quite half the population, but they're a large chunk of the population, to believe that uh, Boris is the good guy or to believe that Boris has messed this whole thing up and that they ought to go with Farage. That's the first question. Then Jeremy Corbyn has to decide what he actually wants to do. He has always himself personally been an anti-European. All his most wild, most strong supporters, young left wing Britain, tend to be very pro-European. If he decides he's actually going to say, actually, we're staying, that will make a very big difference. Uh, and then and then we need to see how coherently the, the Liberal Democrats at the moment are the, the, you know, the traditional centrist party are taking in uh, MPs from both the two major parties because they are the uh, unambiguously um, anti-Brexit party. We have a first-past-the-post system in the UK, just like in the States. Whoever gets the most votes uh, in any one mm-hmm. constituency gets to send people to Parliament. Very weird things can happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tony Blair won an overall majority with 35% of the overall vote. Clement Attlee lost to Winston Churchill, even though he won 48% of the vote, and Churchill only got 44. Very, very strange things can happen. Uh, yeah. And given given that you know that there there are at least four, I haven't even mentioned the nationalists in Scotland and Wales. Uh, given given that there are at least four parties with a viable shot in every constituency. Literally anything could happen. John Authors, thank you so much for being with us. John Authors, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can find all his columns as well as all the columns written by the uh, the columnists uh, at OPINCO on the Bloomberg or Bloomberg.com slash opinion. We are hearing a little bit more of a positive tone from China and the U.S. in terms of possibly coming together to talk about talking about talking about talks. Uh, But there is a question of just how much damage the tariffs have already implemented and, frankly, how much closer the United States has gotten to solving the problem that President Trump identified, which is that there are vast tracts of the population that have been left behind by globalization. So joining us now to discuss Ted Alden, uh, who is a senior fellow at CFR, uh, Council on Foreign Relations. He's also the author of a new book that's 
failure to adjust how Americans got left behind in the global economy. So, Ted, I want to start there. I mean, we're talking about how there seems to be a little bit of an easing in the tensions, but the U.S. did put more tariffs on China over the weekend. I'm wondering, have the tariffs that have been implemented so far gotten closer to bringing parts of the U.S. population back into the folds that might have gotten left behind by globalization? Um, thanks for the question, Lisa. No, I mean, unfortunately, I think the evidence is pretty clear that they have not. I mean, the, the segments of the country that were hit particularly hard in the 2000s and after were manufacturing dependent states, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And we've seen no real recovery of manufacturing as a result of the tariffs on China. In fact, most recently, what we're seeing is a slump in manufacturing. So, so the generally strong economy has been good in these places. Low unemployment is, is great, even in places that have, have struggled. But the trade war, I think, has harmed these places rather than helping them. So, Ted, just in terms of, you know, the inequality, uh, uh, income inequality in, in the U.S. and the divide and, you know, uh, sections of the economy that have been left behind, what do, you, is there, what do you think is a solution there? You know, we've seen, again, the shift from manufacturing to services and so on, but clearly certain segments of the population have done much better at the expense of certain other segments. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge challenge. I think in some ways it's the biggest challenge facing the United States right now. Geographically, uh, the places that have done very well in a world of globalization and technology are the big cities, particularly the big coastal cities. And the manufacturing heartland, which had done very well in the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, has, has really suffered. I think there's a lot of things that can be done in terms of trying to attract business. I think infrastructure development in these places, broadband across the country is, is way, way overdue. I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of education and retraining. If you actually, if you look at the platforms of, of a number of the Democratic candidates, this issue is very high on the agenda. There are some serious efforts out there, but it's a big problem and one we have not addressed seriously as a country. And blaming it on China, even though China is part of the problem, is not going to get you very far. This is largely a domestic problem that we've got to sort out here in the United States. So uh, you coordinated a task force that worked with the U.S. Trade and Investment Policy Department. And I'm wondering, given your experience with government officials and sort of how trade policy gets created, do you, can you give us any insight into how much we could glean from these talks about talks about talks about maybe talking between the U.S. and China maybe the first week of October? I think you're putting that very well, by the way. I, I, I'm certainly not as optimistic as the markets are. I mean, what, what's happened here is that you did have a strategy that was being run largely out of the U.S. Trade Representative's office by Bob Lighthizer, who's an experienced negotiator. But since the talks fell apart in May, President Trump has really taken over and, and, and his Twitter feed is running a lot of the policy. And that, that leaves it very unpredictable. I mean, we simply don't know from day to day and the markets don't know whether he might ease things off because he wants a deal that would help reinforce the strong economy going into 2020 or whether he's going to escalate because he's upset with the Chinese and, and he wants to try to raise the pressure. So, so it's gone from being a, a reasonably understandable strategy, put pressure on China through tariffs to try to achieve a specific set of ends having to do with technology transfer and intellectual property protection and subsidies to really a kind of open-ended tit for tat. I think we're in a much more dangerous phase of the trade war right now. So, Ted, do you 
which you know seems like the U.S. in terms of its trade negotiations has gone from more of a multilateral global discussion to more of a unilateral, you know, U.S. versus China, U.S. versus maybe the U.K. in terms of trade negotiations, and it's really been a change in strategy. Give us your sense of kind of the pluses and minuses of of kind of our current unilateral strategy. Yeah, that, that's a great question, and it is an enormous change. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, I would say we had kind of a combination. So you were, you were seeing the, the GATT trading, what was then called the GATT trading system, move forward. But there was also a lot of unilateral pressure from the United States, particularly on Japan, which was running very large trade surpluses with the U.S. in those years. In the mid-1990s, with the creation of the World Trade Organization, we moved mostly to the multilateral system. You know, did regional deals like NAFTA and others, but largely the strategy was pursue trade liberalization globally and use the WTO to resolve disputes. Now we have gone hard back really to this unilateral approach. And the theory is, well, the U.S. is the largest market in the world. And so if we restrict access, that can force other countries to make concessions. It kind of worked with Canada and Mexico in the new NAFTA talks. It kind of worked with Korea might work a little bit with Japan. We're negotiating with Japan right now. But with China, which is such a big, powerful economy, it hasn't worked at all. In fact, it's made things much worse. So let's talk about the tariffs that went into effect over the weekend. Will this have a more material effect on what consumers end up feeling, as some people have speculated? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's very clear if you look at the items on the on the list, uh, they are almost all consumer items. So this is directly the stuff that we're buying in the Target and Walmart. The, the first two lists were largely targeted either capital goods or intermediate goods, which actually have hurt. It's part of why U.S. manufacturers are hurting, because components from China have uh, fairly high tariffs on them already. But now what we're seeing is the consumer market, you know, Apple watches and clothing and shoes and, you know, kids baseball equipment, all that stuff is on this next list. And then we've got another one coming out in December, unless the president changes course, which will cover the rest of, of China's consumer products being sold in the United States. So, so really this fall, I think consumers are going to feel the impact of this trade war much more directly than they have up to this point, unless the two sides call it off, which I, I don't think is likely in, in October, but obviously it's better to have them talking than not talking. So Ted, I mean, give us a sense of, of timing here. Is this, you know, any potential resolution between the U.S. and China, is that something that can actually get done in the relatively near term, or is it in maybe something that gets kicked down the, the road until after the election in 2020? I think that's the most likely. I, I think it's just very hard to see how the two sides come to a deal at this point. There's so much scrutiny. This is under such a big spotlight that the only way a deal happens is if either the Chinese back down and make big concessions or President Trump backs down and make big con makes big concessions. Neither of those is very likely. So I think we're likely to see, you know, at least the status quo, possibly continued small escalations right through the election. And then the president will campaign on saying, well, the Chinese want to see a Democrat elected because a Democrat will go soft on China. So I think he'll use this as part of his election strategy. The wild card here is, is the economic hit here in the United States. So the economy is still, as you know, very well, reasonably strong, though there are signs of weakness. I think if the economy takes a, an obvious dip over the next several months, then it's possible the White House will recalculate. But I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're going to get a deal anytime soon. Ted, just to sort of wrap things up, you were talking about some of the potential solutions to the gap uh, that we're seeing in people who've been left behind by globalization. Do you think that the Democrats have proposed anything that could actually solve that? Or is basically nobody really talking about viable solutions? 
Well, I actually think there are a whole bunch of viable solutions. I think there are, are, are dozens of things that can be done. And it's really not just Democrats. You know, I mean, th- this is actually an issue that the Trump White House cares about. You know, they've talked about infrastructure. They've done a bunch of things to try to strengthen apprenticeship programs and retraining. They haven't gotten very far because they're not a well-organized government and they haven't been able to work with the Democrats on the Hill to try to put much money into this. But there's, there's a lot of consensus out there. I worked on a big report uh, uh, for CFR with, with Obama's Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker and former Michigan Governor John Engler came out last year. We have a whole series of recommendations in there. There's work from Aspen, there's work from Carnegie, the American Enterprise Institute, Brookings is doing fabulous work. There's a whole series of great ideas out here. It's just right. going to require the leadership. Ted Alden, thank you so much. We'll have to look up those ideas and uh, and debate them the next time you come on because I think that it's an important conversation to continue to have. Ted Alden is a CFR senior fellow and he's the author of a book, Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy, uh, talking about some solutions beyond the uh, tariffs that we have seen so far. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.